Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Happy Sunday. Happy, I'm just going to call this Thanksgiving Sunday because as another reminder, don't come next week because we're not going to be here. You can come if you want. You'll just be outside in the cold, and you can, you can have your own church service outside. That's fine. I don't care. That's all right. Um, well, yeah, thank you for coming this morning. Uh, as Chris said, we are in Revelation 19. It's crazy to think that like, we started this almost six months ago, and it feels like it was yesterday, and it also feels like we've been in Revelation for a year, and we need like another two years uh, to really get through it. But this week we're in Revelation 19, and this is probably, it might be the most excited that I've ever been to to deliver a message, because I I think what the Lord wants to reveal to us in this chapter is so powerful, and it's been so powerful in in, in my heart and in my life as as I've prepared for it. Um, And so I just, I pray that the Lord does the same in you as well this morning. Um, So there's only four weeks left, and... If you've been around for a while, you know that uh, we've kind of been skipping all around Revelation. Uh, We started with the letters. We kind of started in order. And then we got everything all jumbled up because Revelation is not written in chronological order, so we didn't preach it that way. But now we've kind kind of come back together in unison. Sylvia read Revelation 19. We've been reading a chapter every week. Uh, even if that chapter didn't match up with what was being preached that week. But, uh, uh, you know, now the stars have aligned. And Re- Sophie read Revelation 19, uh, so I don't have to. I'm still going to because it's an awesome, it's an awesome chapter. So thank you, Sylvie. Um, but so for this week and until chapter 22, we're just going to take a chapter a week. Um, and I think it's important that we do that because what, what's happening in these last four chapters of Revelation is the culmination of the entire Bible. It's the culmination of the entire story of God's redemption over the earth. That's ultimately what Revelation is in general. It's an unveiling of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and it tells the story from the beginning of creation until the end. That's what Revelation does. And we're coming to, we're coming to the conclusion, to the close of Revelation, and so it's important that we really dig in and, and give these chapters the time that, we're do, that they're due. Um, we're actually not doing that. Because um, if it was up, if it was up to me, we'd probably have another six months just in these chapters alone because they're just they're so dense and so awesome. Um, so that's where that's where we're going this morning. Chapter 19 next week is going to be sorry not next week my bad two weeks from now. I'm sorry, Jason. I, yeah, I almost did it. I saved it. I saved it. Two weeks from now, we're going to go to 20, 21, 22, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to finish out the year strong in Revelation 22, and it's going to be amazing. But last week, my brother talked about the, the bulls and the plagues and the fall of Babylon. And while all of that seemed really heavy, the question that we were left with is, are our hearts in a state of survival or are they in a state of revival? Are we in survival mode or revival mode? See, in the last days, I believe that we will be protected from all of the chaos that's surrounding us, from the pain around us. But the question is, are we just going to white-knuckle it through that chaos, or are we going to survive? And the thing there is, maybe some of you feel like that's going on right now. 
that that pain, that chaos, that, that, that oppression, there's just so many things up in the air right now, geopolitically, nationally, all of these things. Maybe you feel like that's happening right now. Guess what it is? And so the question is, are you going to wait for the 100-pound hailstones and the asteroid hits and the sea turning to blood? Guess what? If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, that's probably not going to happen. If it does, that's fine. I'm here for it. But if you're awaiting that before you stand up as the church and declare the truth and the joy and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're missing it. We cannot be just in a state of survival. We have to be in a state of revival. There's work to do now, and that requires a church that is active and living by the power of the Spirit, not a scared or surviving church. And we're going to do our best here at Church 214 not to be a scared or surviving church. We're not going to get it perfect. But we're going to be a church that's about revival. And so that was, was that 15, 16, and 18 that you preached? Yeah. I'm so glad I don't have to go through three chapters this morning. Whew. So now we're in chapter 19, and if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to call this message The Tale of Two Banquets. The Tale of Two Banquets. And this, like most of Revelation, is full of imagery, and this chapter mostly centers around two different banquets, two different meals, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the great supper of God. These are two distinctly different things, but they're related and tied together. And so we're going to go through that this morning. We're also going to tackle... Uh, the dreaded Armageddon today. Who here th- has like, you know, heard of Armageddon, kind of feels like they know like what's going on in Armageddon? Only a couple hands. Sweet. I- apparently nobody's read Revelation before. That's awesome. Then you won't have to unlearn things. We're going to dive into Armageddon today, and I promise you that Armageddon is so much cooler than what most of us have been taught. So much bigger than what most of us have been taught. I almost, gave, I almost gave away, like, that part of my message. I couldn't help but go into it, but I'll save it. I'll save it. So I'm going to go through Revelation 19. If you remember, Revelation is the highway that connects the New Testament to the Old Testament, so I'm going to be referencing a lot of Old Testament passages, a lot of Old Testament antecedents that directly relate to chapter 19. If you want to throw that first slide up there. If you want to do uh, your own homework at home, you can read through these chapters, Psalm 48, Psalm 68, Psalm 74, Isaiah 14, chapter 24 through 27, chapters 54 and 55, Ezekiel 38 and 39. These passages of the Bible directly correlate to chapter 19. I'm just going to pick out a couple pieces of these, and there's lots more than this, but this will give you a good head start if you want to go and study that at home. But I don't have time to go through all of them this morning, so I thought I would give them to you, and you can do it on your own. If you have questions, feel free to come back to me, not next week, but two weeks from now, and we can talk about it. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into 19. Father, would your presence just be in this place? God, would you reveal to us what you're trying to speak in chapter 19, the visions that you gave to John and and what you're trying to speak to your church today through chapter 19. God, would you awaken us to reality? Would you anchor us in victory and ignite us to action? God, come and do what only you can do. Would you just spur revival in our hearts this morning? 
Would you give us courage to stand in the storm? Would you give us compassion and tenderness to love people that hate us? And God, would you bring about revival? Would you recall the nations to yourself? Would you establish your family and establish your kingdom? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's do a little bit of chapter 19. Just like the rest of Revelation, chapter 19 is also not written chronologically within itself, so I'm going to skip around within 19. I'm going to do 1 through 4, and then I'm going to go to 11 through 21, and then back to 6 through 10. It's going to be fun. So, chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. All right, so if you remember back in chapter 18, Babylon has been dealt with. Babylon is defeated. One of the primary agents of chaos has been defeated. It's been destroyed. This human-established, self-exalting system that is founded by by rebellious spiritual powers has been defeated. And so then we go to verse 1 through 4. It says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. God is true and just in his judgment of Babylon. He is true and just in his judgment of evil on the earth. And verse 2 says that Babylon has corrupted the entire earth with her immorality. See, Babylon has everything that you could ever need or desire. It has every satisfaction for the desire of your flesh, but it's empty and it's rot to your soul. That's what Babylon has to offer. All of the opulence with no sustenance. But the world including the U.S., before you start to get, you know, nationalist, including the U.S., has drunk from the cup of her deception and debauchery. The world has fallen wholesale back in John's time and today has fallen wholesale for the cup of drunkenness and debauchery that the prostitute of Babylon offers. All of the opulence... Everything that your flesh could desire can be satisfied, and it's rot to your soul. It's empty. But it's been defeated by by Jesus. Verse 3 says that the smoke from her goes up forever. This shows the permanence with which God has dealt with that system. Babylon is permanently destroyed. And I want you to think about the, the impact of that. Never again. Will there be a system that springs up on earth that is self-exalting, that is self-established, that, that, that pursues the desires of the flesh rather than the desires of the kingdom? 
Never again will that system be established. Nor will it ever corrupt the earth again. That's good news, church. That's good news. All right, let's move on to 11 through 21. So Babylon is defeated. And then we go to 11 through 21. And then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. There's that word again. In righteousness, he judges. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. That's the first banquet. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's 11 through 21. 11 through 16 is some of the most boss imagery of Jesus in the entire Bible, right? But as much as I love it, I'm going to leave it largely untouched this morning, uh, unfortunately. One, because I don't have time. Two, we've actually already covered most of this imagery in other parts of Revelation. Also, it's relatively self-explanatory. There's some other cool things there, but I don't have time to get into them. But the, the, the general structure and the idea, what, what 11 through 21 is trying to convey is that Babylon is gone, the system is gone, now we will deal directly with the human armies that serve the beast. This rebellious system is gone, now we will deal with, directly with the human armies that serve the beast. Yahweh has torn down their systems, but the deception of the beast is so strong in their hearts, that and their hearts are so hard that they would rather make war against Yahweh instead of repent. Remember I talked about this several weeks ago, where the wrath of Yahweh, there's mercy in the wrath of Yahweh. Because when he crushes the idols in our lives, he's trying to reveal that what we were actually serving was not meant for our, for our flourishing, it was meant for our destruction. This is exactly what he does here. He destroys Babylon, he destroys this system to reveal to the people that what they were serving was actually a rot for their soul. And their hearts are so hard because of the deception of the beast that instead of repenting and turning to Yahweh, they make war against him. 
That's what's happening here in 11 through 21. Now, remember most of Revelation is imagery. This is likely not a physical battle that we're talking about. That might come against some of the things that you've been taught about Revelation. Now, if it is, if it is a real battle, and we really are riding on white horses behind Jesus, and a real sword comes out of his mouth and kills everybody, I'm here for it. Like, that's fine. But I don't think that that's exactly what this passage is trying to convey. Remember, what do we do with imagery? We think higher. We think bigger. Imagery makes theological statements. What sort of theological statement is, is Jesus trying to make through the vision of John in 11 through 21 here? And ultimately, the message that's trying to be conveyed here is that this is a reversal. What's happening here is a reversal, a purification of the corruption of men and the Messiah creator reestablishing his rule over the earth. That's verse 15. Jesus is reversing the corruption of men and reestablishing his rule over the earth. You see, what happened in the beginning is, is, is the Trinity made the world, created the world, made Eden, put Adam and Eve there and said, make this place or make the rest of the world look like this place. That was the original mission and vision of humanity. But we screwed it up. The earth was corrupted. The world drank the cup of the deception of Babylon. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's cleaning the slate. He is reversing that corruption and starting the trajectory back towards a global Eden. That's what's happening here. This is a reversal. Jesus is preparing the way for a global Eden, purifying the earth, and then reestablishing a co-rulership under the dominion of men who are submitted to Yahweh. See, in verse 15, it says that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. If you go back to Revelation 2, 26 and 27, he delegates that rule back to us. That rod of iron that he's talking about in, in, in Revelation 2.26, it says that he gives that rod of iron to those who conquer. We are called to rule over the earth in submission to Yahweh. This Again, this is going back to Eden. This is how it was supposed to be in Eden. God establishes Eden, puts Adam and Eve there and says, work and keep the garden. You're in charge here, but they were supposed to be in submission under Yahweh. And as soon as they got outside of that submission of Yahweh, things fell apart. And so what's being reestablished here is, is Jesus is taking back rule over the entire earth, reestablishing and setting the stage for Eden to happen again. And he says, all right, now my people that are, that are submitted to me, that believe in me, that want to build the kingdom, reestablish Eden. I'm delegating that authority back to you in co-rulership with me and in submission to me to reestablish a global Eden. And that is the point of 11 through 21. He is setting the stage. He is clearing house and purifying the earth so that a global Eden can be established once again. All right, so what about the great supper of God? What's this first banquet? We read that in verse 17, so I'm just gonna read it really quick. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. First, 
Verse 17 is probably like one of the best trash-talking call-your-shot messages in the entire Bible. Like, like th- this is the scene. Like, John, John's having this vision, and then John sees an angel standing in the sun. And, and this angel is kind of back here, you know, in the sun, looking at what's happening down here on earth. And he sees the armies of Yahweh assembling and the armies of the beast assembling. And he's going, oh, shoot. Birds, you better get ready because it's going down. <laughs> like, Jesus is about to throw down, so get ready because it, it, it's happening. Loosen up your belts. You're going to need some room. That's what verse 17 is saying. I think it's hilarious. But this is the imagery that chaos itself and its human servants are being consumed. That's what's happening in the great supper of God. Chaos itself is being consumed. You see, chaos is so powerless that it is defeated single-handedly by Jesus. It's defeated single-handedly by by the word of truth that's coming from his mouth. And it's also so powerless that after it's defeated and killed, it's consumed in shame by wild beasts. That is the destiny of chaos. That is the destiny of evil and sin. It's destroyed by Jesus, and it's consumed in shame by wild beasts. It doesn't have any honor. It doesn't get buried. Nobody remembers it. It is done. It's consumed in shame. Let's bring a little bit of Old Testament into here. Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. And you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. That's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 19. What David is doing is, if you didn't pick up on it, David is describing the exodus from Egypt and Israel's trip through the Red Sea. When God parted the waters before them and Israel, and as Israel crossed through the Red Sea, David is recalling that and he's foreshadowing what's happening here in Revelation 19. That when that happened, the head of Leviathan was crushed by Yahweh. And he was consumed by wild beasts. This is a foreshadowing of what's happening here in Revelation 19. A foreshadowing that chaos itself stands no match against Yahweh. It will be conquered and it will be consumed in shame. All right, now what about Armageddon? Chapter 19 very clearly is the battle of Armageddon. Basically all scholars uh, agree with this. But the only time Armageddon is actually mentioned in the Bible is in Revelation 16. So we're going to go back there and just kind of and read that to kind of set the stage for this is, in fact, the battle of Armageddon. So Revelation 16, verses 14 and 16. For there are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Does that sound familiar? They go abroad to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. All right, so, so what? Why is that important? How many people have been taught that, including myself, so I'm going to raise my hand too, so don't be shy. 
How many people have been taught that this is a real battle at the end of days that will take place on the plains of Megiddo? Okay, quite a few of you. We're going to learn stuff today. If that happens, great. I'm here for it. But what if this story, what if this vision, what if, it's, what if what is being portrayed here is way bigger and way better than just a battle or a war to end all wars at the end of days that takes place on the, on the plains of Megiddo? What if it's better than that? So who's ready to learn something new about Armageddon? Probably learn something new. Awesome. Love it. So, let's start with the actual word Armageddon. So, if you look back in, in verse 16 of chapter 16, it says, a place that in Hebrew, so in the Hebrew language, it's called Armageddon. And the Greek there is Har Megadon, which is a Greek translation of a Hebrew, sorry, Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. Basically, what that means is that there's a Hebrew word, and in Greek, the, the phonetic way to say that is Har Megadon. That's how we get Armageddon. Now, har in Hebrew is pretty easy. That har in Hebrew is, is mountain, and it's really unmistakable. That's the only thing that har means. So har in Hebrew is mountain, but the difficulty comes with Megadon. See, the prevailing understanding is that the root of Megadon is the same as Megiddo. So Hebrew, like the rest, uh, like a lot of other languages, uses root words, and it builds words off of those roots. That makes sense? And so the, the traditional understanding is that Megadon and Megiddo share the same root. And so they're like, well, it must be Har Megadon or Har Megiddo, therefore the plains of Megiddo. But that doesn't really make sense, does it? Because Har means mountain. And guess what? There are no mountains on or around Megiddo. So what's going on here? Now, Megiddo is a physical place. It's a, there's a valley or a plain area that's mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. But again, there's no mountain there. So what's going on? Well, I'll spare you all of the nerdy details. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'll give you some of the nerdy details. How about that? I'll spare the rest of them all of the nerdy details, and I'll give you a few. So th this is not my original idea. There are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that figured this out. But a better translation for Magadon is the derivative of a word, mohed. It's a Hebrew word, a Hebrew root that looks really similar to Megiddo. But the better translation is mohed, which means assembly. So har Magadon is actually har mohed, which is not the Mount of Megiddo, it's the Mount of Assembly. Zion. Jerusalem. The place where God dwells with his family. So this is not a battle of Megiddo, this is a battle over the home of Yahweh over the place where he resides with his family. This is a battle over the Har Mohed, the Mount of Assembly, where God dwells and rules with his family. But this final battle is not just for Israel. It is also to reclaim the nations. 
This is not just a battle for Jerusalem. It's a battle for all of the earth. So let's go to the Old Testament to pull some of that in. Psalm 48, 1 through 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, the Charmoched. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. I want you to remember that phrase in the far north because it'll be important. Let's do another one. Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. And on that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 19. Direct, direct reference there. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven and heaven. He will punish the spiritual powers and the kings of the earth on the earth. He will punish the earthly powers and he will gather them together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison and after many days, they will be punished. The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion, Harmoched, and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That's one through four. Revelation 19. All right, we're going to do one more. Isaiah 14, 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen, O heaven. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Sound familiar? Babylon. How you are cut down to the ground. The one who laid the nations low, the one who's the destroyer of the destroyers of the earth. The one who's the destroyer of the earth, you've been laid low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north. There's that phrase again. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol in the far reaches of the pit. Sound like Revelation 19? So I want to go back to that phrase in the far north or in the far reaches of the north that's uh, described in Isaiah 14 and in Psalm 48. The reason why that's important is because Jerusalem is actually in the south. So what's up with that? Jerusalem is in the south, but in these passages it's saying, well, he he reigns on the Mount of Assembly in the far north. So what's going on there? Well, in Canaanite literature, Baal establishes his own Mount of Assembly in the north most likely on Mount Hermon. There's a couple mountains that they argue about which one they, the Canaanites believe that it was, but it was probably Mount Hermon. So in, in Canaanite literature, Baal establishes his own Mount of Assembly in the far north, claiming it as his own cosmic center of power in the universe. Baal is saying, I actually rule. This is my throne. This is my Mount of Assembly where I gather my people to it. Remember Isaiah 14, I will ascend. That's what Baal was doing in the far reaches of the north. And so now we're getting into a bit of cosmic geography, which we haven't talked about in a bit. But, but the physical north and the spiritual north in the Bible is associated with rebellion against Yahweh. And you can see why. Because Baal's saying, no, I rule over the universe and this is my throne up here in the north. 
So Ball sets up his own center of power in the cosmic universe, his pseudo-mount of assembly, his pseudo-Zion. And so what's going on here in chapter 19 and in these passages in the Old Testament is that Yahweh is directly challenging and conquering the thrones of his spiritual enemies. Let's just go back to, to Psalm 48 again. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all of the earth, not just of Israel. It's the joy of all the earth. Remember, he's reclaiming the nations to himself. He's bringing the nations back to himself. Mount Zion in the far north. So Yahweh is saying, Baal, you think you reign in the north? That's mine. And I'm reclaiming the people underneath my throne that you think are under you. That's what's happening here in the Old Testament and in Revelation 19. Yahweh is directly conquering the thrones of his spiritual enemies and bringing the nations back to himself. So this is a battle for the Har Mokhed, the battle for the true mount of assembly. The battle for the place where God rules from and where his family assembles underneath of him in co-rulership with him. That's what the battle of Armageddon is for. And so Armageddon is more than just a war to end all wars. Jesus is simultaneously purifying the earth and overthrowing the rulership of his cosmic enemies and establishing the true throne, the true center of the cosmos, on the true mount of assembly, where Yahweh dwells with his newly assembled family recalling the nations to himself. Isn't that a little bit different, a little bit bigger, a little bit better than just a final battle on the plains of Megiddo? Evil will be destroyed, but it's far bigger than just evil being destroyed in some place over in the Middle East. Yahweh is reclaiming all people to himself and tearing down every throne that comes against him. So ultimately, the message of 11 through 21 is we win. <laughs> Seriously, that's it. That's the great supper of God. The great supper of God is we win and every enemy of God is destroyed. The second banquet is we get a reward. So if 11 through 21 is the purification of the earth, and it's the transfer of power and co-rulership with us, ruling with a rod of iron and reestablishing the Edenic calling and mission. We already talked about that. That's what 11 through 21 is doing. Purifying the earth, transferring that co-rulership to us in submission to Yahweh so that we can re-execute again the Edenic mission. It's a reversal of the chaos that has consumed the earth. And now from that place of authority and the purity given to us by Jesus, we rule with him and consume chaos in our rulership. That's what's happening in 6 through 10. So let's read 6 through 10. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's the second feast. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted to her. 
She didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. It was granted to us. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Yes, they are our righteous deeds, but they've been purified and perfected by the blood of Jesus. And he's granted to us pure robes of fine linen. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down and worshiped at his feet. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what is this marriage supper of the Lamb? This is ultimately a a motif, an idea of a great banquet with God that's threaded throughout the entire Bible. And it's something that's present in a lot of other religions as well. This great banquet with God in the end to celebrate Yahweh's victory. But apart from just the way that it's depicted in the Bible, quite frankly, what are families supposed to do together? Right After Yahweh has purified the earth and, and defeated all powers of darkness and he assembles all of his family to himself, what are families supposed to do together? We're about ready to do this on Thanksgiving, hopefully. We, we feast. We celebrate. We celebrate the good things in our lives and what God is doing and what he has done. That's what families are supposed to do. And so does it not make sense that at the end of all things, after after Yahweh has removed all encumbrances for his people to come to him and purify the earth, he says, now we feast. We have a great reward. We feast and we enjoy each other's company. We celebrate the good things in each other's life. And so why not the same with God's heavenly family? And in heaven, after all is made new, we have a lot to celebrate, don't we? Right? Let's go to Isaiah 25. This has probably become, after preparing for this, one of my, one of my new favorite passages in the Bible. Isaiah 25, 1 through 2, and then we'll skip to 6 through 10. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, planned from of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace as a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Babylon is destroyed. Evil is conquered. It will never be rebuilt. Let's skip to verse 6. And on this mountain, there's the Mount of Assembly again. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just Israel, not just Jerusalem. He is recalling the nations to himself. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. Listen to this. Listen to chapter 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. He will swallow up on the Mount of Assembly the very things that have been keeping his people from coming to him in the first place. The veil that has spread over all of the nations. 
He will swallow up death forever. The smoke of Babylon goes up forever. He will swallow up death forever on the real Mount of Assembly. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, not just Israel's faces, all faces. He's reclaiming the nations to himself. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The prodigals are coming home. We've waited. But salvation is here. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, the Mount of Assembly. Let's do one more passage, Isaiah 26 or 27, verse 6. And in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The reestablishing of Eden. Church, this is what chapter 19 is about. The purification of the world, the elimination of evil, and a reestablishing of Eden with a banquet for all people on the true mount of assembly. And every rebellious throne is crushed. And the nations are called back to the Lord. A banquet on the real mount of assembly, consuming chaos itself. This is the place where death dies for good. We have an Edenic mission to fill the earth and subdue it. Jacob will take root, it will put forth shoots, and it will fill the entire world with fruit. Subdue chaos and make it look like Eden. See, this banquet celebrates the death of death. This banquet celebrates the destruction of the destroyers of the earth, the destruction of chaos. And look what's served here in verse 6 of Isaiah 25. A feast of rich food, well-aged wine, food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. All of the opulence that Babylon offered. All of the richness that Babylon offered. But it's a celebration of the glory of God, not a celebration of self-indulgence. This isn't an empty feast. This is a feast of flourishing. This feast is not rot for your soul. It is breath to your soul. We are feasting in intimacy with him, not in, rebellious, not in rebellion against him. 
See, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a reversal of the battle of Armageddon. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a reversal of the great supper of God where death is consumed. See, what better way to consume death and chaos itself than with eternal life and celebration? What better way to consume chaos and death than with eternal life and celebration? See, Christ disarms and defeats chaos and Armageddon, and we consume chaos by flipping the script by reversing what that chaos did on the earth. See, where death and chaos and self-destruction reigned, now there is eternal feasting. Now there is eternal celebration and peace and life. Where there was decay and brokenness and entropy, now through co-rulership with Christ, we reestablish a global Eden. We consume chaos by reestablishing what the earth was meant to be in the first place. So church, there's work to be done. Chapter 19 is supposed to lift our eyes higher. Remember Revelation, the purpose of Revelation is to awaken us to reality, to anchor us in victory and to ignite us to action. And chapter 19 has that in spades. It awakens us to the reality that evil is real, that chaos is real, but it is no match for Yahweh. It anchors us in the victory that one day, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what chaos you are going through, no matter what oppression you're under, no matter what betrayal you're going through, no matter what sickness you're going through, all chaos will be consumed with a word. The sort of truth that comes from the mouth of Jesus. So you can be assured of your ultimate victory. You can anchor your life in that victory. Chapter 19 ignites us to action. Because if we really understand the victory that Jesus won for us, then no matter what chaos comes our way, we can move forward with joy. No matter what hurt you're going through, no matter what, what betrayal or sickness you're going through, you can stand firm that says, no, Jesus wins. I know my ultimate reality. I know the ultimate victory. And it might look really dark. It might look really bloody right now. It might hurt terribly right now. But my Jesus wins. My Jesus wins. That also frees us to love sacrificially. So if there's oppression coming at you, you can look above that oppression and say, that's not, I don't, that's not mine to, to deal with. Yeah, we can, like, we can battle against it, but Jesus defeats it at the end. And so I can look past that oppression and sacrificially love the person that's oppressing me. 
I can sacrificially love the person that's betraying me. I can sacrificially love the person that seems to be serving the beast instead of serving Yahweh. Chapter 19 allows us to love. It frees us to love sacrificially. So church, there is work to be done. And there is great joy that's set before us. There's a great joy set before us. Don't let the enemy steal it. Don't let the oppression that you're going through supersede the victory that Jesus has won for you. Don't let the sickness that you're going through supersede the healing and the joy and the wholeness that you will experience in heaven. Don't let the empty things that this world has to offer you supersede the great feast that you will partake in in heaven. Don't let the enemy steal that joy. Don't let the enemy steal that anchor, that firm foundation for your feet. How about you stand and close your eyes? This morning while the band was practicing, every time I preach, I, I, I pray over every seat. And I ask the Lord what I should pray for today. And so what I prayed over your seat this morning was that you would just have a taste of the banquet that is set before you. that you would taste the banquet that is set before you. That you would see and feel the reversal that is coming in your life. Where Jesus reverses chaos into peace. He reverses death into life. He reverses sickness into healing. God, would we taste your banquet today? And God, with that taste, would it make the feast of the world be like the dog's vomit? wants to reverse some change this morning. Some of you have aligned with the enemy in your life, whether that's your own sin, whether that's something that was put on you or passed down to you, but you've aligned with the enemy this morning and you're in chains. But what Revelation 19 tells you this morning is that those chains are broken in the name of Jesus. 
And it's not just that those chains are left behind you. Those chains become your food. See, your destiny in heaven is to consume that chaos for all of eternity. Jesus is in the business of reversing things, turning dead things back to life, broken things put together again. Rather than chains becoming an an anchor holding you back, they become your food that push you forward. So I don't know how you need to respond this morning. But I think there's some of you that that your chains need to be laid down at the altar. And reversed and turned into your food. Turned into the fuel that pushes you forward. this morning, would you just give us a vision of the banquet that you have set before us? God, would you anchor us in your victory? Would you purify us with your spirit? From that place of victory and purity, God, would you help us to reestablish Eden here on the earth? To consume chaos forever through the eternal life that you give us and the good fruit that we bear. And our eternal life and celebration with you on your Mount of Assembly. those that are far from you, would you call them home this morning? Call them back to yourself, Jesus. Crush the pseudo thrones of power that they're sitting at right now and would you bring them home? Would you draw them back to yourself as you defeat your spiritual enemies and reclaim the nations to yourself. God, in our hearts this morning, would you bring revival? God, just help us to catch a glimpse the marriage supper of the Lamb that you have set before all of us. Where chaos is consumed.
where everything that distances us from you is destroyed and consumed and we can feast with you forever in intimacy and with joy and with peace that never ends. God, anchor us in that reality and empower us to bring the lost home. Anchor us in your victory. And empower us to live lives of sacrifice. Because everything we could ever need and want is in you. And it only gets better. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your victory. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for the feast that you have set before us. We praise your holy name.